we echo Tim's sentiments from last week about how good it is to be able to sing again and to hear people sing. Um, it really is a precious and profound thing when God's people worship together in such a way. And like Tim, I have to admit, I'm also not much of a singer. Um, you'd think that living with two of the members of the worship team for several years now, something might have rubbed off on me, but apparently not. Having said that, I do think God has a sense of humor because um, as you'll see in a minute when we start to look at this chapter, what we're actually looking at is a song. And as I was preparing for it, I remembered that when I was speaking in our Exodus series a couple of years ago, I was also looking at a song. So I don't know if the Lord's trying to tell me something, but if he is, I'm not really sure what it is. We're here again. In contrast to that Exodus passage um, that we looked at a couple of years ago, where the Israelites had just crossed over the Red Sea, they're singing the song of celebration and a victory about how God is their strength and their song and their salvation, I'd say today there's a slight change of tone, just a little bit, because um, what we've actually got here in chapter five is a funeral song, a dirge, if you like. What a great word that is. So happy Sunday, everyone. I hope you're ready to get stuck in. Now, for the aforementioned reasons, I'll not be singing this, obviously, but I will read it. So if you have got a Bible, um, do turn with me to Amos chapter 5. I'm reading from the ESV translation. If not, the word should come up on the screen behind me or on your screens at home as well. So Amos chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O oh, you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate and they abhor him who speaks truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing and in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. 
and in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Sobering stuff for a Sunday morning, I think. At the start of this lamentation, Israel is personified as um, a virgin, a, a young woman, fallen no more to rise, which is a euphemism for death and a, a tragic and an untimely one at that. It's like she is mortally wounded on the battlefield and abandoned with no one to help her. And although she should have had her whole life ahead of her, that's not to be. What's more, verse 3 tells us that her army is to be decimated. The tens and hundreds it talks about here probably does mean squads, companies, platoons, whatever you want to call them, rather than individual soldiers. But nevertheless, 90% of her mighty military is going to be decimated in a short amount of time and uh, leaving her completely defenseless. So it's certainly a cause for lament. And Amos is lamenting. It's actually quite possible that as he delivers this message, he might be wearing funeral attire. He might have shaved his head for the occasion. Um, he might even have been crying as he sings. And I'm not sure it makes for a particularly catchy song, but it certainly would have been attention-grabbing and an effective way to get people to hear the word of the Lord. I mean, imagine if you're just on your daily commute and you see him every day and you walk past and it's like, there goes the sheep farmer again. He's ranting and raving about the day of the Lord. And then one day he's just there and he's crying and he's weeping and he's singing a funeral song over your country. I think even if you don't really believe the message, that's got to be quite an unnerving change of tack. Having said all that, I don't think Amos is just delivering the prophecy this way for the sake of drama. He, I believe he's actually lamenting because he has captured something of the heart of God, and God is lamenting too. And if you're a little bit confused about how that can be the case, I definitely recommend you catch up on Tim's preach from last week because I think he did a great job of explaining what it looks like to be disciplined in love. But if you want any more evidence that this is God's heart, then I think we need look no further than Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 19, as Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem for the final time, he prophesies over the city and he says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. So he's actually weeping as he says this. And there's a similar account in Matthew 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing that's not the voice of someone who doesn't care. That's the voice of a God who cares deeply. He is just and he does have to act in accordance with that. But it doesn't mean he takes delight in people's downfall. His preference is for repentance. And that's really what the rest of this passage is about today. It's like God's final plea through Amos to call the people to repentance and it's summarized in the refrain that appears throughout the 17 verses, seek the Lord and live. But what does it look like to seek God and live? What does it truly look like to repent? Well, the first thing to note that in order to truly seek God and live, we have to stop seeking life in all the wrong places first. So in verse five, God says, seek me and live, but it's immediately followed by, and do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal, and do not cross over to Beersheba. They're 
mutually exclusive, you can't do both. It probably helps to have a bit of context around this to understand what it means. So we'll do a quick geography and history lesson rolled up into one. Bethel, Gilgal and Bathsheba are places and um, Bethel and Gilgal were in the north in Israel and Beersheba was actually down in the south. Bethel was the place, if you remember, where God, um, Jacob met God in a dream and there's the ladder up to heaven and it's a really significant moment for Jacob in his journey and in his relationship with the Lord. So you can understand then why some people might want to journey there and why they might want to worship there, perhaps in the hope of experiencing something of what Jacob experienced. Gilgal was the place that Saul was first crowned king, which was really important to the 10 tribes in the north. It's the place where the Israelites first camped after they crossed over the Jordan into the promised land. And it's the place where they renewed their covenant with God, albeit by mass circumcision. So I'd probably be less keen to experience some of what they experienced there. Beersheba's a little less well-known, but Jacob worshipped there before entering Egypt with his family, and there were lots of promises tied to it really around land and inheritance. So depending on what you were seeking, that might have been an apt place to go. And clearly a lot of Israelites were happy to make the pilgrimage from the north into the south for it. I think it's fair to say that at these places, some people would have been there to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I know there were replicas of the Jerusalem temple set, in, set up in some of these places. But it's actually also likely that there's worship of other gods there, um, you know, setting up of shrines and Asherah poles and all things that were um, detestable to God. So in some places, it was a, a bit of a hybrid of the two, but the issue is that Israelites thought this is where God was to be found, and he was not. I was um, on holiday last week with my family, and my dad was talking to me about this app. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called What Three Words. And from what I understand of it, the, the premise is that, I was going to say the whole world, but that sounds like a lot. Everywhere is split into three by three meters squared, and each square has so, like its own unique code of three words. And I think the point is it's supposed to be a bit more accurate than GPS and you can search for these words or you could, um, I don't know, send these words to someone else who needed to find you. So we thought we'd test it out and play a bit of a game of hide and seek. Except um, when we went to find my dad, he just hadn't really hid very well. So stepped out of the accommodation we were in and I could literally see him a mile off. So all to say, it was actually a really disappointing and very short game of hide and seek. And that is the disappointing end to that story. <laughs> but um, I bring it up because it does feel a little bit like the Israelites have gone, okay, Bethel, Gilgal, Bathsheba, there's my three words. Surely there's God. But actually in the very place of Bethel where Jacob awakes from his dream and says, surely, like truly indeed God is in this place. Um, the Israelites are saying, surely, truly, indeed, God is in this place. And God's saying, no, I'm not. And you, you don't even know it. So God's call to Israel is for them to stop seeking life in the wrong places. And it's the same call of God to us today. I appreciate we might not be setting up shrines or going on pilgrimage to other places, but we're not just talking about geography. I think where we're talking about these places, we're talking about anything that would prevent us from seeking God wholeheartedly. 
I wonder what that might be for you. Sometimes it's seemingly innocent things. I know for me it can be TV or online shopping or just looking forward to that glass of wine at the end of the week. Sometimes it's our bank balance or our social life or even sleep. And it's not that all of these things are bad, but when we go to them primarily for life and joy and peace and rest, then something's not quite right. If we lean too heavily on things that were not created to support us, they will eventually collapse. And that's the warning of God for Israel in verse 6. He says, if Israel don't turn from these places, he will break out like a fire amongst them and none can quench the fire of God. And then what do they have left? So seek God and live, don't seek Bethel. The second aspect of repentance that we come across today then is not just that we turn from the other places, but that we turn to the Lord. The, the plea again in verse six is seek the Lord and live. And I know these might sound like one and the same thing, but actually when we're talking about repentance, it's not just turning away from something, it's this idea of you were going in one direction and now you're turning around and you're going back in the complete opposite direction. So we were once walking away from the Lord. When we repent, we do a full circle and turn back and walk towards him. And interestingly, in these next few verses, it seems like Amos feels the need to remind the Israelites of who God is. And is that not ha what happens when we wander a bit, when we stray? We forget who God is, and we need reminding of aspects of his character. So Amos wants to rectify that, and that's where we find ourselves in verses 8 and 9. If when I was reading it, these seemed like a bit out of place um, in, the, in the midst of everything else, it's actually because they're a hymn of their own sorts. Some scholars think it was a hymn that Israelites would have known that Amos has brought into his own song. And it's kind of inception like levels of song within a song, which is, I don't know, culminating in some kind of big funeral remix. I'm, I'm not really sure. But anyway, I don't think it's coincident that at the heart of this song, we're reminded the Lord is his name. He's the one that makes the stars and the constellation. He's the one that has power and creation over the earth. He is the one in charge of the rising and the setting of the sun and over the seas, not like these other pagan gods. And in verse 9, it says, he can overturn any walled fortress. So don't be smug thinking that nothing can come against you. Anything man-made will not be enough to protect them in the day of God's judgment. If he can change morning to night and day to morning, then he can just as easily change the fate of Israel. And we too are to remember this morning who our God is. I, I love some of the songs we were singing and, and the contributions. He's all powerful and he's the creator of all and he's our source of life. And you can forget that, but the reason any of us are here today right now is because he wills it, because he gives us life. It's not something that we have control over. So he is worthy to be praised. And that's the thing to remember this morning. We can't do life apart from him. So the second plea is to turn to God and to remember who he is. The third and final aspect of repentance then is found in verses 14 and 15, and it's to seek good and not evil. This is where Israel falls short, really. They're walking around, as it says in verse 14, saying, God is with us. But there's such a huge disparity. They're not practicing what they preach. 
We're told there's widespread corruption, the legal system is rotten through and through. When people are trying to speak out against this and denounce it, they're hated, they're attacked, they're silenced. The elders and the rich are trampling on the poor, and one of the ways they're doing this is by heavy taxation. I feel like it's worth me making clear that taxation isn't a sin. Even when you get your paycheck at the end of the month and you look at that figure and you feel the injustice of it all, uh, Jesus still paid his taxes. He gave to Caesar what was Caesar, so I'm just still telling you, you do still need to pay yours. <laughs> the issue we're talking about here is over-taxation and, and the taxing of land that should never have been taxed. The poor are having to rent their own land and the money is going to the rich and the rich are building fancy houses out of it. And not only that, but the judges are accepting bribes, they're not listening to the needy, and they're wrongly ruling in favor of the rich. So this is all just such a mess and a, a massive, massive miscarriage of justice. It's no wonder that the wise are keeping stum because they know that anything they say at this moment in time isn't going to help. But God, but God sees these things. He says, I know how many are your transgressions. I know your sin. And he won't let them go unpunished. The poor might not be heard at the city gate, but they are heard at the gates of heaven. And although, um, you know, everybody's built these fancy houses and got this land, God promises them, you're not going to have time to enjoy them. As you've made others homeless, so you will become homeless when devastation comes over the land. Seek good and not evil, hate evil and love good. It's not enough for us to just be doers of the word, um, hearers of the word rather. We must be doers. We, we need to be people of deeds. True repentance is evidenced in changed behavior. So as we turn from the wrong places and we turn to God and we see God for who he is, we can't help but be changed. Our, our priorities, his priorities become our priorities. We care about what he cares about. We desire to right wrongs. What breaks his heart breaks our heart. At last, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. So as we come to the end of this passage today, we, you, you might see there's a, a bit of... Um, a theme, as it were. We started out with a lament. We kind of walked through repentance. We're going to end with another lament because, unfortunately, the Israelites don't seek God and they don't repent. And so it was prophesied that there would be widespread mourning and wailing in a way that's actually very re reminiscent of the final plague in Egypt. There was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. God passed over the people of Israel during that final plague to strike the Egyptians. But now God is going to have to judge his people the very same way he judged their enemies. No longer passing over them, but passing through them. And unfortunately, leaving a trail of tears behind as the um, Assyrians later invade Israel and everyone is carried off into exile. In fact, the prophecy says there'll be so much wailing and mourning that They'll have run out of professional mourners and they'll have to call in the farmhands. I just think who knew there was such a thing as professional mourners? Uh, a little Googling informs me that it's actually quite a common tradition in China and in the Middle East. Um, but it seems like it is making its way to the UK because there is a site called Rent a Mourner. And uh, reading it was eye-opening, to say the least. 
If you're interested in the job spec at all, professional mourners must study the background of the deceased at length, familiarizing themselves with the life of the deceased and developing a backstory to explain how they were acquainted. On the day, they must arrive promptly and at the correct location. They'll be attired in whatever the job uh, dress code is specified, so whether that's somber black or the colors of the dead person's beloved football team. They're not necessarily required to cry, but as they tend to be actors looking for work, it's a skill that most of them have. And when the service is over, they will talk to everyone from deaf Aunt Ethel to bewildered children, easing the pressure of hosting for the family. So if anyone's interested, if you've got a bit of spare time on your hands, you want to hone your acting skills, then uh, you know where to go. And I also just think, has anyone thought that, considered that the children are probably bewildered because they're like, who are you and why are you crying over my granddad? Anyway, I share that to end on a bit more of a lighthearted note. I know to, today's a bit more of a heavy passage, but having said that, we have more reason for joy than just an amusing anecdote because we have hope and that hope is Jesus. Sure, it wasn't such a great ending for Israel at the time, but that doesn't have to be our story. And actually, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it's not your story. Yes, we actually do deserve this kind of judgment. We might not be trampling on the poor or bribing people. And I don't know about you, but I don't own a vineyard. But the fact is that the root of all of this is not the, it's not the societal system, really. It's not the um, warped social norms. It's actually the sin that lies behind all of this. And I think we can all agree that none of us are immune to sin. The reality of the gospel, however, is that we don't have to experience the wrath of God in that way, not because God just had a change of heart, but because Jesus took the punishment that we deserve when he died on the cross. And as we put our trust in him, we are passed over by God because we are covered by the lamb's blood. And I think when we grasp this afresh, then there's cause for a different kind of tears, much happier tears. Can I get the band up? As we um, end our time today, I think there's just a bit of an opportunity for a moment, a moment with the Lord, a, a moment of repentance. But I also do just want us to remember and just to be so reassured that any time we have wandered from God, any time we've come, become spiritually dull or we've been looking for life in the wrong places, we can always turn back. And we can know that we will be welcomed back and will be welcomed back into life. For where we find God is where we find life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. So again, as we close, I'd love for us to take a moment and if it helps, do close your eyes, not because it's magic, but it will help you focus a bit. It's worth asking God if there is anything in particular that he does want you to turn from. And I'm sure he'll let you know if there is. But as you do so, I just want you to remember who he is. He is for you. He longs to gather you to himself. He is patient with you, 
not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. As Amos says, hear this word of the Lord. Can you hear it? Can you hear the heartbeat of God, his song over you? It's not accusation. It's not condemnation. It's a promise. And it's an invitation. It's that loving refrain. Choose me. Choose life. Seek me and live. Oh, Jesus, we thank you so much for what you did on that cross. That means that we don't have to experience the judgment of God, but that we can come into life, into fullness of life, that we can have promise of eternal life with you forever. And I just pray for us all here this morning and for everyone in the room at home, Lord, that we would know your heart again, Lord, that we would hear that invitation, that we would... Um, hear your love for us as you call us to repentance, as you call us to seek you afresh.